Amen, amen. If you got a Bible, go on and open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That's where we'll be here in just a minute. But I got to tell you something that's really important to me. Back in January of 2017, Hasbro Games rocked the world by putting to a vote whether to change the iconic game tokens of its longtime seller, Monopoly. Monopoly fans? Okay, it's going to be a tough sermon. Okay, um, 4.3 million voters participated in the, vote, the polls that eventually led to Monopoly dropping the wheelbarrow, which was introduced in the 50s, and the thimble in the boot that date all the way back to 1935. They were replaced by a rubber duck, a penguin, and a T-Rex. If you need evidence that the world we live in has fallen, what in the world is that? Like, I don't even know. If you've bought a Monopoly game in recent days and had to put up with those tokens, I apologize. I loved the thimble growing up. Um, thimble was, that was my jam. I don't know why, I just liked it. Uh, I'm not a sewer uh, seamstress, seamster. Anyway, um, I don't do I don't do seaming, um, but I love the the thimble. And so recently, uh, as I was scrolling Facebook, I actually saw an official Hasbro poll again. They did it again. However, this time Monopoly was putting it before the people again to decide which old piece to bring back and which new piece to get rid of. And I said. Praise you, Lord, God of the heavens. I don't know how many votes were cast, but I know I cast two. From my personal email account that I've had since I was in high school or college, I guess, and my church email account. And uh, I, if you go now to my Facebook page and you look back to the day that I found it, I, I didn't look at the date, but I shared that poll on my Facebook page, begging you guys who are friends with me on Facebook to please help us fix this terrible problem. And uh, I posted, please bring back the thimble and ditch the T-Rex. Now, again, I don't know how many votes were cast, but I can say now the results are finally in. Give it up. We did it. We got the thimble back, and we got rid of the T-Rex. Um, I may have single-handedly accomplished this. Um, I don't know. But here's what I do know. I can remember being a kid and playing Monopoly, and I thought it was really, really fun. Uh, we had no idea what the little houses were for. Uh, we just decorated our properties with them. Um, but Monopoly was much more than a board game to me, and still is, because... I had inadvertently developed a theology of death based on Monopoly, which is probably the weirdest thing you're going to hear all day. Um, playing Monopoly with multiple people seemed to take forever, didn't it? And if you were the first one to go bankrupt, that was the worst. Because sometimes you would have to sit out for a long period of time. And so everyone else gets to keep playing, everybody else is having fun, and you're sitting over there praying they go bankrupt so that the game can be over. And though I was raised in church and I knew the truths about death as a young child, I found it much easier to view death this way. We're all playing 
in this game of life, unrelated to the board game by the same name. And when you get out, it really stinks. You're dead. You can't play anymore until a point really, really far in the future when, when everything goes back in the box and we all get to start all over and play again. Now, I get it. That's like reincarnation, and that's weird, like that I would have that thought as a kid. However, uh, it may sound childish to you, but this is what I remember staying up at night trying to convince myself that this is how life worked. Here's why. Because I couldn't imagine an existence any different than the one I was experiencing here. Okay? Now, I don't know how you feel about death, but chances are we've all ha- we've, we all have or have had concerns and questions about death. Uh, since 2008, I've been in vocational ministry. I've been at the bedside of enough dying people and done enough funerals and talked to enough grieving families to know that death sits heavy on the heart of many people. So this, this morning, um, if we're going to attempt to answer a question that many people around us and even people in the church are asking about. We need to have a healthy answer for it. So this is week two of our OK Google series. We're going to answer the question, what happens when we die? Surprisingly, as I was studying, uh, this topic is actually not talked about a ton in the Bible. In fact, This week, I found that there are many other religions and cultures that give more significant time to sketch out exactly what the afterlife looks like for their people. But the Bible gives us these little glimpses, and we're going to look at those today. But the one section um, that gives us the most meat, so the most bang for your buck, is 2 Corinthians 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, um, and then I'm going to pray, and we're going to come back and start working through this. So this is what the Word of the Lord says. For we know that if our earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. Indeed, we groan in this tent, desiring to put on our heavenly dwelling. Since we are, since uh, when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. Indeed, we groan while we are in this tent, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the one who prepared us for this very purpose is God who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. In fact, we are confident and we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for your word. And God, uh, on such an emotional topic, God, I pray that you would give us uh, clarity today. Uh, God, you'd help us to see the truths of your word. And God, uh, be able to dispel um, any myths that we have in our mind, God, that were placed there over the years uh, through a number of means. Um, But God, we pray that you give us clarity of mind. And God, may we find hope and rest in uh, your ultimate future for us. So, Father, we trust you with this today. We ask you to guide us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, first off, I know you've probably had a long weekend, and I know many of you work VBS, but y'all are going to have to wake up. All right, so let's move around. Let's, y'all are super quiet today, and it's going to be tough to get through because we got a lot to cover. Okay, here we go. Um, the first thing that we're seeing in the text should not be, uh, probably not catch you off guard. Okay, um, our bodies die. Okay, 
Big shocker, right? Um, Paul uses an analogy here to reference our bodies. He calls our body a tent. Tents are simple and can provide shelter for us in the temporary, but most of us probably don't want to live in a tent. We definitely know we don't want to live in one forever because they will not last no matter where you buy it from. In the same way, our earthly bodies are no longer built for eternity. As we talked about last week, if you remember, when sin, death, and suffering entered the world, everything changed for us. Adam and Eve were made to be physically in the presence of God forever and ever, but now, because of sin and death, we have an expiration date stamped somewhere on these earthly shells. No one can escape death. It's coming for all of us, whether by violence, disease, accident, or old age. We will all one day breathe our last. And these temporary tents become limp and lifeless, and we bury them in the dirt. Many who do not believe in God believe this is it for us. No more existence. It's the end of the road. But Paul says in the text that when we die... Here on earth, though our tent dies, we continue to exist somehow. So, before we talk about what Paul might actually mean by that, let me explain some things he doesn't mean, <laughs> okay? Now, here's what I know. Talking about death is super emotional because like, when I talk about death, I'm going to talk about some things today. You're going to immediately think of a family member or somebody in your life who died, and it's going to create a lot of emotion in your life. So, in preparation for that, I, may, I put somebody that I love into all my points from here on out, <laughs> okay? Uh, the last member of my family to pass away was my, great, was my granddad, and we called him Paul. And I love Paul. Paul was a Christian. I got to talk with him about salvation and, and confirm that he believed in Jesus and that he was trusting in him with his, with his future. And so I am going to, as best I can, kind of pick apart some false ideas we believe um, about death. And the first thing that oftentimes people want me to believe about my pawpaw is that pawpaw got his wings. Pawpaw got his wings. We see this on social media or hear it said at funerals by grieving loved ones. However, the idea that we become angels who float on clouds and play harps the rest of eternity is just false. The heavenly beings that we call, we typically call angels, are created for a purpose. Some of the winged heavenly creatures seem to simply have the purpose of worshiping at God's throne. These are called the seraphim. And then there are the cherubim, which God asked Moses to carve as part of the temple. They had wings as well and seemed to be guard-like warriors. They were the ones that God placed at the entrance to the garden in Eden uh, to keep Adam and Eve from coming back. And then there are the ones that the Bible actually calls angels. The word angel simply means messenger. They are the beings that can resemble humanity, who come to earth to give specific messages to humanity. They are not depicted as having wings, but usually appear in a bright light with white clothing. But sometimes they come in a little bit more chilled, normal way. But not, in, in no way does the biblical text overwhelmingly say that we become angels. So, don't blast your friend when they post that on Facebook, okay? But if you get an opportunity to encourage them, make sure that if they're asking questions about what their loved one is like, then help them grasp the actual role that angels fill. The second false idea we have is that Paul's fishing in heaven now. 
Papa's fishing in heaven. You can sub in playing golf, softball, hunting, which I've all heard, or one I created, knitting Jesus a sweater, which, anyway, that would be cool. Um, the reason we're so quick to do this is because our life here on earth so informs our view of who we are that it becomes, from, it becomes hard for me to think of my Paul doing anything other than what he enjoyed doing here on earth. We know that heaven is supposed to be some place of extreme joy and fulfillment, so it must include all the things that my Paul enjoyed. Otherwise, he ain't having a good time. But just to be blunt, to point out the obvious, my papa doesn't have a body right now. We just read that in the text, right? That's the difficulty with all these things. Fishing, golfing, softball, hunting, knitting. What do you need to do all of those? You need a body. And right now, my papa doesn't have one. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8 says, We are confident that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. He goes on to say, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. For the believer to be at home with the Lord, he must be away from his body. So my Paul Paul has died and is buried in Gatlin Cemetery. But if he's with the Lord, where is that and what form is he in? So I'm going to give you point number two. And there's a word in it that I hate. But it's the best I could come up with, okay? But we're going to talk about it. Uh, this is point number two. Uh, when we die, we are in heaven in a disembodied form, which has got to be the creep. That's creepy. I hate the word disembodied, but that's what we're going to go with for now, okay? This seems to be the biblical reality. Our existence during this time is not physical. We are spiritually as believers in the presence of God. So I know what you're thinking. Okay, Heath. Papa's Papa's not an angel. Papa's not fishing in heaven. So Papa must be a soul who is now in heaven forever. It's the closest we've come to being right. But there's still some problems even with this statement. Okay? And I've got it up there. Can you throw it there, guys? Papa? There it is. This is the closest we've come. Um, I'm going to look at a couple problems with this statement. One of them you're going to go, hey, that's a little nitpicky. And then the other one, I hope you go, oh, that, that makes sense, okay? So we can blame all the confusion of this statement and why it's ingrained in our minds. We can blame it all on a guy named Plato. He was a Greek philosopher who lived about 300 years before Jesus. He's very well known, shaped much of our classical learning and ideas. His philosophy is still studied and revered in many um, circles today. In fact, what later becomes the English word soul comes from a Greek word that more than likely came from Plato. By the time the New Testament authors come on the scene 300 years after Plato, his teaching is widespread, and the apostles, as they do in so many ways, which can be weird to us, but they actually pull from the common language to communicate the truths of God's word. So they pull in this Greek word that Plato had already used. But it takes on a completely different role because they're building on the foundation of the Old Testament, not on the teachings of Plato. And here's what Plato believed about the soul. He believed the soul to be our actual being that was trapped in human flesh. It was what gave our bodies life. And when our bodies died, our souls would continue living forever. And this state as a, as a disembodied soul was the ultimate state for humans. Now, 
One of the biggest problems we have in regards to understanding death is that that's exactly what I believed <laughs> throughout most of my life. And maybe you do too. Um, most Christians believe exactly what I just said Plato believed. The soul is our actual being. It's trapped inside this sinful human flesh. And it's what gives our bodies life. And when our bodies die, our souls will continue living forever in this new ultimate state that God has for us. I want to ask for a show of hands, but I've already raised mine. So this sounds true. The problem is there's some issues with it. The Bible though it does use, we get translated in the, the English word soul, quite often actually never speaks of our souls as some, as some true self that's trapped in flesh. That's an idea that Plato came up with, and you won't find it in the Bible. In fact, we don't really find a true definition of the word soul in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the word that we translate as soul actually seems to represent the whole person, including our bodies. And you don't have to look far to find it. Genesis 2, 7. Page 2 of the Bible. The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The word being there is the Hebrew word nephesh. Can you say nephesh? It's like Sesame Street, right? Can you say nephesh? All right. Um, that was more like a, another cartoon I'm thinking of. Dora, that sounded more like Dora. That's what that sounded like. Thanks, man. Um, so uh, the word nephesh, which in in many other places gets translated soul. So when when uh, when when the author of Genesis says man became a living nephesh, in a lot of other places that's the word soul. So to Plato, a soul is an is a soul is inside of a body, just trapped there. And oftentimes I've heard pastors do it. We'll take this text, verse seven, and we'll look at it through a Plato lens. And we'll say that God breathed a soul into his body. But is that what the text said? Don't, don't nod or shake in case you're wrong. No, it's not what the text said. What the text said was that the breath of, the breath of God goes into his nostrils, into his body, and the man as a whole became a living soul, a living nephesh including the body. The breath of God along with the body is now a soul. Throughout the Old Testament, this word nephesh definitely refers to the life that's within a person, but it's never devoid of the body itself. In fact, it's even used to describe a corpse. Leviticus 21.11, Numbers 6.6, and many other places in the Old Testament, get it's, the, it's literally a dead nephesh. So if the body is dead... How can the soul be dead too if Plato was right? But what we're seeing is that, that the word nephesh, the word soul, especially in the Old Testament, includes so much more than, than what we typically say. So to say that we exist as a, to say that my Paul exists as a soul in the heaven is just, it's tough to argue biblically because that word soul has so much more meaning to it than the way that Plato described it. It's okay to use that term because it's a habit for me and I'm going to do it maybe before the sermon is over. Don't call me on it, okay? It's what I was taught growing up, in it, but it's probably not the right word. The issue is the Bible doesn't give us the right word. Wouldn't it be awesome if he said, hey, no, soul's not really right. Here's the word you should use. But what we know is that, though I don't know what word to use it, I know that my Paul is not in heaven as a soul necessarily, but it's safe to say that he is in the presence of God in heaven in some form without a body. 
So I want to take the word soul out of the statement earlier. And let's put it back up there. Paul Paul is in heaven forever. So I took the soul part out. We'll just leave the disembodied thing out. So is Paul Paul in heaven forever? Well, no. We're going to get there. This is probably the biggest disservice that Plato has brought to our minds, and we don't even realize it often. To Plato, this disembodied life that my Paul Paul is now living was true living. Once a person's soul became free of this terrible body, it allowed them to see the world as it really is. You can Google uh, man in a cave, uh, Plato's parable that he used to drive this issue home, that when we see things from this new perspective that, um, that, that it's really living. But this existence to Plato was the ultimate existence. Now hear me when I say this. Don't throw anything at me because I'll prove it to you before we finish. Heaven is not the ultimate existence for us. We were not made eternally for heaven. The period of time from which we die and go into heaven as a, as a disembodied existence should be viewed as what we call an intermediate state, an interim period. God's intent for mankind was not to float bodiless in heaven. It's a spot filler until he can provide the real thing for us. Our time in heaven as disembodied beings is a temporary existence that will come to an end when God brings about his full restoration. And what will that restoration look like? It'll actually look very familiar. What we... In fact, what we know is that man has already experienced God's ultimate existence for us. We saw it earlier when we were talking about God creating mankind. What we see from the very beginning is God creates a beautiful world, and then he creates a physical man and woman to rule with him, to enjoy the presence of God and his creation in a physical body. God's ultimate end for mankind is not to draw us away from earth, from this fallen earth into heaven forever. His plan for us involves fixing what we messed up here. God's desire is to restore all of creation and then put us right back here where we belong, on earth, under heaven, in the perfect presence of our holy God. God turns back the page to his original intent, but instead of a garden in Eden for man to enjoy, the entire cosmos are ours to rule and reign with Christ. Everything has been made new. Revelation 21 speaks of this new heaven and new earth that will happen. Verse 1, then I saw, this is John writing about this vision that he's having. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city. This, this new Jerusalem that was coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God will, himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Listen, this existence that we're seeing here, this new heaven and new earth, this is the one that's eternal. Not the disembodied state in heaven. Once all things are made new, then we will enter into this new eternal state. 
But what does that look like for us? It's what Paul speaks about back in 2 Corinthians 5 too. He talks about a, an eternal dwelling. Instead of this earthly tent, there's this eternal dwelling. If we're to be part of this physically new creation, we cannot do so as disembodied creatures. We need bodies. But my Paul's body was already old when it was buried. He was in his late 80s. So, and it's been a grave for a while. It's probably not, probably not in good shape. So how will my Paul experience the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever and ever? The Bible tells us. Gives us a glimpse anyway. Writing to the same people in a different letter in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul talks more about these bodies that await us. He uses similar language. He says this, listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We'll not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with mortality, immortality. Notice the similar images here. Earthly tent in 2 Corinthians, and, but an eternal dwelling that awaits us. Here, he says, our bodies are corruptible, but there is an incorruptible one waiting. We are mortal bodies, but we need to be clothed with immortality. He's playing the same poetic game. There's clearly some sort of better body that awaits us that's eternal. This is what we usually talk about at the funeral, right? The deceased, hey, they don't have good knees. They're going to have no, they won't have cancer anymore. Like we use those things and we do that and that's good because they won't have them because they won't have a body. But they won't, but what we've seen is that this new body we often talk about at their funeral, actually won't come in heaven when they die. But 1 Corinthians 15 tells us when it does come. And all he says is, at the last trumpet. By the time Jesus comes on the scene, it was believed that trumpets would accompany the great, terrible day of the Lord. And if you remember back a few months ago, I think it was in February, we we studied through the first four books of the Minor Prophets, and the day of the Lord was spoken of as a day in which God brings judgment as well as salvation. Jesus and his followers taught that after he died, was resurrected, and ascended into heaven, then he would one day return to bring about the final day of the Lord. This is what we call the second coming of Christ. And when Jesus himself talked about it during his ministry, guess what he mentioned? Trumpets. Verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the distress of those days that he just got finished talking about, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Jesus says that there will be a loud trumpet. Now, there are a ton of other verses that we can start cross-referencing and we can get way down in the weeds today, but we're not, okay? It's not a study of your revelation. You've got to find that somewhere else today, okay? We won't do that. But if we're to take this idea that the Son of Man is coming on the clouds with power and glory after the loud trumpet... Let's take that back to 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, or 1 and 2 Corinthians. And we can say that our new bodies, these eternal dwellings that will be given 
to us are given to us at Christ's second coming, when he returns to the earth. Now, Paul here, nor Jesus, touch on how we receive these new bodies. But in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, Paul assures his readers that both believers who are still living and believers who have died will, be made, will both be made new. So here's what that means. If I'm still on earth when Christ comes back, which based on this Monopoly stuff, it could be soon. I don't know what's going on. If I'm still on earth when Christ comes back, Paul says that my Paul will actually be coming back with Christ in his disembodied form. That's what Paul, that's what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Now, what does that look like? I don't know. But it says that, that he will be coming back. And then Christ will raise up his old body from Gatlin Cemetery. I think I'm right in that, babe. Is he buried at Gatlin? It is Gatlin. Okay, sorry. I meant to check with you. She's better with that stuff. But Christ is going to raise up his old body and it will be reunited in a moment that creates something new and eternal. His disembodied form is reunited with his old body and in a moment something new and eternal exists. And what Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 4 is that I, if I am left here on the earth, will meet Christ in the air and my body will be changed in a moment to the same eternal state as Paul Paul's. Now Paul ends this discussion by saying this, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore encourage one another with these words. Paul's purpose was to make sure everybody knew, nobody's getting, if, you've, if you're in Christ, everybody gets a body. Oprah style, you get a body, you get a body. everybody gets a body. If you are in Christ, no matter how long you've been dead or whether you were still living, that's Paul's driving. Encourage one another with these words. And with these new bodies, he says, we will reign with Christ on earth forever and ever and ever. And I'm leaving out a lot of details, but that's the, that's the glorious and wild story that the Bible paints. So what happens when we die? It's not so easy a question to answer, and the Bible doesn't give us all the answers we're looking for. What I've tried to do is, from God's Word, provide for you an outline. Just a few things from Paul's writing and from several other places. Try to dispel some of the myths that we've created over the years and in our minds today. But I've got to circle back to 2 Corinthians 5, to something that gets glossed over. Anytime we talk about death, the afterlife, we talk about Revelation, the book of Revelation, we talk about end times, the thing that gets lost among all of it is that Paul said we should be excited about the future. Is it confusing? Sure enough. <laughs> but is it something to be excited about? Listen, going back to 2 Corinthians 5, we know what we know about Paul is he had awesome friends. He had a great ministry that God had given him. He had a great life. But listen, in 2 Corinthians 5, what we see is that Paul knew there was a day coming when he would breathe his last, and he knew that he would get to experience something so great that would make even the best moments on earth seem boring. All Paul needed was to be with his Savior. It was the best thing he could experience. And he knew that there was a day coming when Christ would return and he would get to experience not only a disembodied, 
existence in heaven, but he would get to experience God's creation the way he originally intended it. A full overlap of God's presence and God's creation. And we as humans getting to rule and reign with Christ forever. I have to say, even as your pastor, the thought of death still weirds me out. It's hard for me to imagine what life will look like after I die. It's hard for me to imagine what my pawpaw has been doing the last couple of years. But I can find hope in God's word. If I trust what it says, that the future will be better than anything I have experienced here. Today, you may want to spend time worshiping God for this reality today. Thanking him that one day he will bring us back to the beginning to experience what he originally intended and we blew it. A perfect existence on earth, under heaven. Or you may want to pray for a friend or neighbor at the altar or where you are who has not yet trusted in Jesus and will not get to experience this future reality. Or... If you're here and you're uncertain about your relationship with God through Christ, um, please come talk to me. Right? I, I don't know if you know you're not a believer or for some reason you're just worried about it. We'd love to help you process through that. I'm, I'm a pro at it because I've done it multiple times in my life. Had to process through whether I'm in Christ. We want to help you process with it too. I'll be, I'll be back at the back um, as we sing one more song. So our worship team is going to come up. Um, they're going to sing one more song. Really, really cool. So a really simple song. Okay, really, really simple song. Sing along with this. It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Um, and so you can respond right where you are. You can come to this altar. I'll be back at the back if you need to talk to me about anything, uh, about what's on your heart. So I'm going to pray, and then uh, we can respond. Father God, we do thank you. Uh, God, that though you don't answer all of our questions that we have um, in your word, God, not all the questions I have anyway, um, but God, you give us enough that, that I can, I can sleep tonight, God, knowing that if I don't wake up tomorrow, God, that I'll be experiencing something greater than I ever experienced. And God, that there's a day coming in which you're going to make all things new and your kingdom, as you originally intended, will span the cosmos perfectly and we'll get to be there with Christ. Father, I pray for those in the room, God, as Patrick already did at the beginning, God. God, if they can't lay their head on that pillow and, and find that same peace that I'm finding, that this that this this message, the word of God, is, is screaming to them, God, I pray that they just talk with somebody. God, at least to you, that they would talk to you. God, we would make that make some steps today, God, to, to figure out how we can trust in you. And so, Father, I pray for confidence for them to come and talk. God, for those of us who are Christians, I pray that you you would just give us that peace. God, Satan sneaks in and God wants us to doubt. God wants us to throw questions at the Bible that, that can't be answered and then throw our hands up in frustration. God, turn our back on you. God, as we talked about last week, we've experienced suffering and Satan wants us to, to look at suffering and look at the people that didn't deserve to die and turn our back on you. But God, what we've seen in your word, God, is if, 
if we've lost a loved one who's trusted in you, God, that it's, there's nothing to worry about them. So God, give us peace. God, give us hope. Be with us today as we respond to your word. Help us to be honest before you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll stand. You can respond however you need to.